It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, Eljoy Williams. And I am so happy that you've made it to class this morning. Probably some of you are like me and you have a list of things that you need to complete between now and the end of the year. You have a nice little list, it's probably in your kitchen, you know, in your notebook or in your phone like mine is. And there are things you need to do at the house. You got to finish shopping. You got to finish, get your meal plan together and everything because people come into your house and you know how much food you have. If you got to go to Costco, you also have things you need to do for work. What projects you want to get off of your desk and out of your inbox before then get your taxes and your receipts together. But also on that list, there should be (laughs) a democracy agenda. There should be on your list, communicating with those who represent you before the year is out and expressing your either satisfaction or dissatisfaction with how they have represented you, not only locally, but statewide and federal. And particularly, I have an item for you to add to your agenda for this coming week. I'm going to give you a phone number. Ready? Let's write it out. This is the Senate switchboard number. This is 202 224-3121. Need you to write it down, rewind if you have to, and add it to your list of things to do this week. I want you to call both of your senators this week. And yes, even if you live in a state where you know for a fact your two senators are not going to vote to suspend the filibuster for the John Lewis Act or for the Freedom to Vote Act, I need you to call them anyway. You need to communicate to the people that represent you your desire. And if you so desire, which I hope you do, if you're listening to the show, I'm sure you do support both pieces of those legislation, then I need you to add this number, 202-224-3121, and put it on your list to call your senators this week and express your satisfaction or dissatisfaction with their commitment to voting rights and resisting voter suppression. So add that to your list. We're going to talk about more that should be on your democracy agenda for the uh, end of the year, going into the beginning of the year. But I want you to be on record and make those calls. And you can let me know if you made them and see what the staff told you um, is going to happen. Or maybe if you've bumped into your representatives in you know, the grocery store. Uh, funny story, I bumped into uh, Chuck Schumer in the grocery store once. It happens. <laughs> so that's your homework for the week. Now, we're going to talk more about that, as I mentioned, with our guests for this Sunday morning. And coming to the front of the class is someone I am so happy to be in coalition with. We have been together on a number of things. She is the founder and CEO of Full Circle Strategies, Joteka Edie, and she has been described, in case you were wondering, in case you, you know, maybe saw that once or twice, she has been described as the Olivia Pope of Silicon Valley. And, you know, 
I have some other some other adjectives to add, you know, dynamite, vocal advocate, you know, all of that. But I'm not going to butter up too much. <laughs> Welcome to the front of the class, my girl, Jataka. Hi. Hi, sis. I'm just really happy to be here. And, you know, I have to admit, I felt so seen when you were talking about the list because I literally made a list this morning and my list was categorized just like you outlined. I was like, okay, I have work things. Oh, I'm having this party this Saturday. This is what I, I need a Costco run. Here's my Costco list. So, so you're exactly right. We're all making these lists. I was like, oh my goodness. Like, is she in my phone right now? <laughs> Well, you know, I want to thank you so very much, so very much for joining us. Your first time on the show, by the way, you know, and I have to, you know, I always ask the question whether or not someone listens to the show because I don't take it for granted. You know, there's so many different podcasts and stories and things like that. But I'm so thankful that you said that you have listened to the show in the past. So, you know, the drill, you know, that we always start with you telling the story of your first civic action. Yeah. So, I, you know, I was actually really, first of all, just super excited to come on the show because I think it's really important for us to talk about what it is that we need to do to be civically engaged and make our voices heard. So it's just, I think, super important for us to continue to understand our own individual power as voters and as a member of this democracy. So my story, and I was actually thinking about this, I was like, ooh, You know, interestingly, and I always tell everybody, I'm from a very small town. So I'm from Johnsonville, South Carolina. I tell everybody I get an opportunity where I'm from. Um, But it's a town, I grew up on a dirt road and my town, we have a population, I think the last census count was 1,491 people. Um, And so my first civic action that I can really remember that really motivated me was actually supporting union workers who were striking in my town. So the local uh, community and most of the workers that work for the local factory in my town, which was really the only, was like the only place uh, that most people worked in my town. And so because it's such a small place, most of the people who were on strike were either family members or people who went to my church. And I will never forget them being on strike And, you know, really fight. And I didn't really fully understand or understood at the time, like, the, you know, what they were really advocating for. I just knew that, you know, the plant and the industry was not treating them right. And um, as a kid, one of the things that I got to do was go and pass water to the strikers who were on strike outside, you know, with their signs. And I just remember just being so motivated by that. And then on top of that, Reverend Jesse Jackson came to my small town. So if you could only imagine a town of 1,491 people and Reverend Jesse Jackson comes, it is like a big deal. Like the entire town shut down. He did this march and rally. And ironically, Clayola Brown, who, you know, many years ago, so this is like, you know, 30 something years ago, was the lead organizer um, for that. And so like years later, like we talk about, she's like, I was in your small town. I know all these people. But I just remember seeing Reverend Jesse Jackson and he spoke at the high school uh, football field and being a part of that rally, being a part of seeing those workers demand their rights for me was like the moment that I knew that I wanted to be involved in movement building. And so that was 
really my real first civic I think that was like the, the my my earliest memory of like real meaningful civic action for me. So I've had a number of people on the show who, when they talk about their first civic action, Reverend Jackson is at the center somehow, either, you know, attending a rally from when he was, you know, first running for president, hearing him speak, him coming to us, doing a voter registration or a rally. And I've had the privilege of working for Reverend Jackson in my past and, you know, I, you know, <laughs> and being on the show, doing, you know, so many different things. And it's interesting that those kind of movements and even something as small as going to a small town, going to speak, you know, at a high school or, you know, seeing the visual representation of his actions on play out on TV or, you know, hearing them on the radio, how they impact people's lives. And so just take, I always think about the work that we do, we both do now and who is looking at us, you know, and we will be part of the story of their first civic action. Like, I think that's, I, that's such an important point. Because I think about and, you know, just and sometimes I pinch myself when I think about the spaces that I'm blessed and honored to occupy. And so the opportunity to work with a Reverend Jesse Jackson, I had no idea when I was like six or seven years old, looking up at that fence. I mean, I could just, I literally I could see him. I, I know exactly what he had on a black you know, well, he often wore black on black, but, you know, he had black on black and he stood there and he, and he said, I am somebody, I am somebody. And I just remember feeling something and just, it just motivated me in a way that spoke to, I believe, and many people in that town, the fact that no matter where we were from, that we had a right, just like everyone else, to a living wage, to fair and equitable treatment, and you know, unfettered access to the ballot box, whether it was a union ballot or whether or not it is the ballot box uh, in which we vote every single day for elections. So I just always think about the importance of representation and being present because your point about, you know, you never know who sees you or who may be motivated. I actually had a very interesting uh, exchange and experience where I was on a call, uh, a win with black women call with a group of black women and a woman raises her hand and says, you might not remember this, Jotaka, but I actually met you 20 years ago. She said, you were student body president at the University of South Carolina. And I said, yes, I was. <laughs> and I, I was the first black woman student body president in the history of the University of South Carolina uh, and the state of South Carolina, the first black woman of a white institution. And at the time, she was a young high school student and she came on a tour through Upward Bound program. And she oh. said she remember coming on our campus on this tour and she kept thinking, where are the black people where the black women and, and as a part of the tour, they brought them by the student government office. And when they brought these young high school students to the student government office, she met me and they were like, and this is the student body president. And I had this conversation with them. She said she walked away and she said, I am going to be student body president one day. And mm. lo and behold, this sister went on to Spelman college and became student body president at Spelman. Wow. College. Wow. And she shared this with me. We ended up in a space together. And so it goes to your point that, 
you never know at the moment. I mean, I'm 20 something years old, not really comprehending that just my sheer presence as a black woman in that space was inspiring another young black woman that would go on in a different space to to lead and continue the good cycle of being that representation for someone else. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for the past couple of Sundays, we've been talking with folks who are outside what I call the metropolitan bubble, right? So folks like me who grew up in, you know, New York City, big city, we often think politics and the entire world revolves around what we think <laughs> and what we believe. You Brooklyn, you know, specifically. <laughs> yeah, you know, thing, you know, it revolves around what we believe, what we say. And I've been spending some time for the past couple of Sundays talking to people outside of that, right? Um, talking to people who grew up or who still live in rural Amer- in rural towns, small towns, Midwest, upstate New York, western New York, in the south, in the Midwest, and sort of dispelling some of the myths and caricatures that we have watching uh, mainstream news on a regular basis in terms of who folks are in the other parts of America. I mean, it's all part of America, obviously, but we, you know, get this idea that particularly if you're in rural or small towns or things, it's all white, (laughs) you know, it's less educated. Everybody's a Republican, you know, or conservative, right? And we know that not to be true. At least we kind of know it, but we still act as if, It is. And for yourself, coming from a small town, coming from South Carolina, coming from a place, I'm interested in how you see, because then you, you know, lived in other parts of the country, how you see those misconceptions of areas like where you grew up, where you're from, play out in policy, play out in other people's agendas, play out in corporate America. Well, that's a really good point and good question. I appreciate that as a person from a small town. I think often the first misconception is that rural America is all white and all Republican. That's, that's, I think, a big misconception that we have to work really hard to reverse because there are many people of color. There's a diversity even amongst the people of color that are in these rural areas. Also, there's this misconception that you know, people in the South or in these rural areas that we're slow or we don't really know what's going on. That's that's definitely not accurate as well. But what is true is often that people in those communities are those that are the most underestimated and underserved and those that are pushed to the margins. And so I think it's important for those that have the opportunity to sit at tables of power that they are constantly thinking about those people, ensuring that we bring those people to the table, that we take the people who are pushed to the margins and put them back into the center exactly where they belong. Because many of these folks in these rural communities or in these other places across the country, they really are the bedrock of our nation. You know, those are the people that are getting up and going to work every day and building a lot of the products and seeding a lot of the products that we depend on on a day-to-day basis. So when you look at where a lot of manufacturing happens, uh, where a lot of farming happens, it happens in these places that are often 
overlooked and underserved. And so we have to, I think, readjust the way we think about those communities, ensuring that we are not only including them at the table, but we're thinking about them in the policymaking. Because also, I believe they often are left out of policymaking. Like, who's really thinking about the reality of the mom that lives in Marion, South Carolina, what her reality is whenever we're thinking about policy, because often we'll overlook some of the nuances and the realities that she may face. And she actually is probably more reflective of more people in America than some of the more narrow visions of who we think we're building policy for. Yeah, I think, you know, it's one of the things I'm challenging myself in thinking outside of Brooklyn, thinking outside, you know, my advocacy here in the state of New York, you know, and traveling and going to other parts of the state and also thinking about that in context of our larger country and how different things that I may want to see implemented in Brooklyn and New York City, what they overall, what's the overall impact across the country. And I think about something as housing policy and thinking about how the formulas that are used to create affordable housing and, you know, New York places like New York City or metropolitan areas that are so close together, the tax base is all over the place, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And so you can have very wealthy people and very poor people living within five miles of each other. That may not be the case in other parts where people are more spread out, right? And so what is the impact of changing policy that, yes, may benefit you, but may have very different implications in another part of the country? Mm -hmm. And sort of thinking, and then vice versa, what are things that would be impactful for people who are spread out, who live in, you know, a farming community or a fishing community and enacting legislation and what impact would they have on New York City um, or New York, which is more, you know, exporting and, you know, traffic. So, so many different things and thinking about that in a, a more impactful way. Well, I want to talk to you about your Silicon Valley <laughs> and corporate America C-suite days and talk about advocacy within that space because there are a lot of people listening who may not be in the you know, advocacy space in terms of their day job, right? They go to a job that, you know, either they clock in, mm -hmm. you know, and they're hourly or they're in a C-suite or they're in a corporate environment and kind of thinking like, I don't really have a job where I can produce change like you're saying. You know, I want to talk a bit more about your suggestions and your insight on how people can do that in different ways. So we'll come right back with Joe Taka um, and we'll talk about C-suite folks when we get back here on Sunday Civics. <laughs> All the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. 
Welcome back to Sunday Civics. We are talking with Jotaka Edie, my girl. She is the CEO of Full Circle Strategies, and she's going to talk about later, like all of the, you know, clients and projects that she works with. But one, so I actually met her when we were both at NAACP, me being in the NAACP first as a first vice president and then president of a branch um, here in Brooklyn. And Jotaka was at the national office. She was working in voting rights. She was an advisor to the president. And so that's how we uh, officially met, if I remember correctly, right, Jotaka? And I believe that was how we, I believe that's how we officially met. It's so, it's so weird. Like nowadays, it just seems like, yeah, I just known you forever. I don't know when. It just seems like I've always known you. <laughs> Yes. So it was definitely from an NAACP perspective. And then you left NAACP and then went to have this amazing, amazing work. I I don't want to even say career because it's still ongoing in Silicon Valley. And as I mentioned in the upfront, you were described by Forbes magazine as the Olivia Pope (laughs) of Silicon Valley, because you had this mix of experience of policy, of advocacy, um, movement building, as you mentioned before, and then taking that to a technology space. Talk a bit about how you made that leap. And then I want to talk about how you continue advocacy in that space. Oh, man. So I made the leap reluctantly. Like I really was, and I talk about it because I just think it's important because I think a lot of people face it. I was recruited into the industry because um, at the time, the industry and and actually two pioneers in the industry that I have a deep amount of admiration and respect for, Mitch and Frida Kapoor. Um, and they are two entrepreneurs, uh, investors, and advocates in the industry that really advocate around diversity in the industry, investing in diverse founders. Um, and so they had reached out, and Ben Jealous, who had been the NAACP president, had went into uh, the industry, and they reached out, and they said, hey, we think you should be in the industry. And I was like, oh, no, I don't think that is actually for me um, because I, I kind of looked at Silicon Valley like, okay, this is a bunch of white guys. Um, I don't know how to code. This is not really my world. I love the NAACP. Like, I love what I do at the NAACP. And quite frankly, I felt like for most of my life that the only place that you could truly be an advocate for the people was in the movement or if you were like an elected officer, like that was just my own, I think, narrow way of thinking. But I was really pushed by, you know, those in the industry and those outside the industry, people like Mignon Moore and Tanya Lombard and Donna Brazil and Bishop Leah Daughtry, um, Ben Jealous and others to really challenge that that thought. And, and, And what they all said to me was tech is the future. Tech is where everything is moving in this country. And it is essential for the industry to be infused with people who not only understand the consumer base for which most of these tech companies are building for, but also can go in and in a very senior leadership role in these companies and really help shape 
and redefine these companies from the ground up. So as these companies are scaling and building, they're building in a way that is inclusive, not only in their staff, but inclusive in, in, in terms of the products that they're building and also looking at how to help companies determine how to build a double bottom line. How can you actually do good and, and also do well as a company and be a successful company, but in the process actually do something that actually creates a greater social impact to the communities or the consumers that you're serving. And so that was what really got me to get over my own imposter syndrome of this idea that I couldn't be successful to go in the industry. Because despite like all I had done at the NAACP or lobbying in the UN or helping win a Supreme Court case, like in my brain, for some reason, I thought like, oh, I can't be successful in this industry. But once I went into the industry, what I realized very quickly was that not only was there a place for someone like me, there was an absolute need for someone like me and multiples of people like me. And that it was an industry that wasn't just white boys uh, in, you know, hoodies, but it was an industry rich with large, you know, numbers of people of color who we just didn't really see them. Um, you know, there wasn't a reflection of them as we see now, you know, in the magazines, in the articles, and we're seeing more and more of that. Um, but it, it to me, um, raised the point that we needed to do more to bring people of color, but also people who are civil rights minded and advocacy minded into these companies. And I'm super proud. I am so proud. Like one of the things I'm most proud of is just by way of going in the industry, how many others have followed suit or how many others have, you know, come to me and I've been able to, you know, advise or, or guide them or support them in their own journey. And now you see folks like, you know, Chanel Hardy, who was at National Urban League, you know, now a senior leader at Google or Janae Ingram, who was at National Action Network, a senior leader at Airbnb, Albert Sanders, who was, you know, in the U.S. Senate and the White House Council, now at Google, uh, you see people like uh, Nate Johannes, uh, who is, you know, now at Instagram and Facebook looking at AI. And the list goes on and on and on of folks from D.C. and the civil rights background who now gone into tech. And I believe that you can see a direct representation of their imprint and their footprint on the industry because the industry, while it has so much that it needs to do, it has so much growth in terms of being more inclusive. I believe firmly that because so many of these folks exist in the industry, that the industry is actually at least listening and at least have people inside the companies that will push them to be better. So, you know, list, there's someone listening, Jotaka, who works in a corporate environment, right? Who cares about voting rights, who cares about justice reform, who cares about the uh, millions of children who are still at or below the poverty line, but their work every day is not focused on it. It's not what their job description is in the position that they have in the C-suite, if you will. How, and, you know, we've had Karen Towns on, you know, my, my uh, mentor on who talks about working in a corporate environment, but still having the social justice view at heart. But from a, our generation standpoint of folks who feel like that's my 
you know, on the weekends and I'll contribute money kind of thing, but not something that I need to implement into my work. What are some tangible things or questions that you would give someone listening to think about or to consider even occupying that seat or that desk? I I mean, the first thing that I always say to anyone that goes into corporate America is, you know, there are blueprints of those that have come before us in these spaces that absolutely go into these spaces and they are good stewards of the companies for which they work for, but they go into these companies absolutely understanding who they are and whom they are. Like you walk into this company. Yes, I work for this company, but I am a black woman that grew up on a dirt road in South Carolina. And I understand these communities that, you know, are largely targeted as consumers of a certain company. And just by you being there, you have an opportunity to be an advocate. And it's something as simple as just asking questions about the product. Uh, or raising questions. I, I think we've seen over and over again, you know, these missteps that have happened in corporate America as it relates to to to, to race or just the, the imagery that has been used as it relates to people of color. And everybody always asks, like, well, did they ask, you know, did they ask somebody black about this before they actually did this ad? And so that's the one thing that you, you know, you could just really be a voice. Um, and I think also... There are things that you could do inside the company in terms of just making recommendations around additional hires, uh, really being an advocate there, making sure that often, particularly in Silicon Valley and tech, companies hire so, so, so fast. And people don't even know that a company exists. Like how many people knew that Uber exists, Um, you know, probably for the first four years that it that it was, you know, in existence? Not many. Uh, But they were hiring and and they went from like 200 to 1,000 employees in a matter of like three months. And so when those when those companies were going from 200 to 1,000, often we don't hear about those jobs. So when you're in these companies, you even have an opportunity and a role to help, you know, be a conduit for people to just get information about coming into these companies. The third thing that I would say is a a real opportunity around advocacy is really challenging internally how uh, the company operates and and budgets. Um, How does the company, uh, you know, hire outside consultants or legal services or uh, engage with marketing firms? Their ad dollars, like just really making recommendations that not only is the right thing to do, but also a good business case because any smart business should be advertising in, uh, you know, the black press, uh, whether it's newspapers, whether it's publications, whether it's podcasts. Um, if you're smart and you're trying to reach the widest amount of consumers who actually highly utilize tech platforms, that's actually where you need to be advertising. So it's also making those business cases that actually bring resources um, and business to black and brown communities. And so I think there's a number of ways that, and that, that you can really be an advocate um, and to really think of yourself and recognize that the power that you carry, like your very presence is a power because you are likely inspiring someone, even if you don't even know that they're seeing you and your voice um, is incredibly valued. And, 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 and the reality is in most of these companies, and it's been my experience in Silicon Valley, 
that there's no one else there to even raise something that to many of us is just common sense. Um, and it's, it's overlooked by other folks because there's no one in the room at the table to raise the question. Mm. Yeah, I think that's important. And similar to some of what Karen said about how you're able to make a difference, even in the space that you sit in, and also making sure that you're not the last, that you're not hoarding, right? And we all know some of those people where, you know, they like being the only Black person in the room. They like being the only Black person that know, like, you know, they like that, right? And you should not Mm -hmm. strive to be that person, (laughs) You know, you shouldn't be striving to, oh, how can I bring in more people? How can, you know, I share that's here? Because we've all all been brought up in this American mindset, right? That if, you know, I lend something, if I share something, that means it's less for me, right? We need to break out of that mindset, that scarcity mindset, because there is no scarcity of resources for others, which means that there is plenty at the table um, for us to bring more people to share with as well. So just take it. We're going to take our last break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about black women and voting rights. <laughs> Two of our favorite topics. Our favorite topics. Uh, we come back um, after our last break. Stay tuned. How can it be that you love the most Welcome back with my girl, Jill Taka, who is also the founder of, you know, a little collective of about, you know, a couple thousand, couple thousand or so black women in social justice space, corporate space, you know, nine to five space, you know, just black women everywhere who came together to really advocate on behalf of our communities. And on behalf of the Black women who have been running in the most recent years, those of you who listen to the show are obviously familiar with Higher Heights and the work that we do to help elect Black women all across the country. But Win With Black Women also adds fuel to that Black women power by coming together on how we can, as we just talked about before the break, pull our resources and networks together that in whatever space that we are in, we can amplify and share the needs of what's important for our communities and our people. Joe a talk a bit about Win With Black Women. Oh, Win With Black Women. For me, I like to best describe Win With Black Women as a collective love letter to Black women from Black women. It's, you know, as you described, an intergenerational intersectional network of Black women who come together in our own personal capacities to really work to uplift the collective agenda and power of Black women. And we started out really in August of 2020. It actually started with an email that I sent to 65 friends. And by that night, there were 90 individuals, uh, Black women from all over the country, from, you know, from Ruth Carter to Donna Brazil to, um, you know, Cassandra Butcher in Hollywood to Dr. Janetta Beshkole and Dr. Hazelyn Dukes, uh, all gathered uh, together. And what we decided that night was that it was imperative for Black women in that moment 
a moment where we were dealing with such racism and the aftermath of not only the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, but we were also seeing racism and sexism hurled at every Black woman whose name came up as a potential vice presidential contender. And we came together and was very clear that we needed to send a strong message that not on our watch, that we will not stand for the personal sexist and racist attacks against Black women because we knew it was not just sabotage against those individuals, but it was a sabotage against Black women as a whole and our collective political power. Um, and that was really the beginning of Women with Black Women. And we've gone on to continue that work of uplifting not only Black women in politics as, as individuals, but also lifting up Black women in other industries. We also wrote a collective love letter to the WNBA um, during the time when they were getting a lot of backlash for the work that they were leading to protest against police brutality and social injustice. So, you know, I love it. I think it is for so many of us that are part of it, it is a safe space, but it is also a place where we could come to advocate for ourselves, each other, and Black women-led organizations. I think it's really important and, you know, part of, as we were talking about before, how you can come together, as you said, you started it off by sending an email to all of us. And think about your own network and what you have the power, the collective power to do, even going back as to the beginning of our conversation and talking about coming from small towns and small areas. Think about, do you have 65 people that you know that you can send an email to and say, look, you work here, you know, you own this business, we come together, we can collectively come together and pull our resources in our town, in our region, what have you to be able to share resources and information to improve and lift up our communities and our people. And it reminds me of one of the errors that I love studying and reading about the, the most, Joteka, is just after Reconstruction, mm -hmm. right? And thinking about ancestors who were formerly enslaved and yet came together some of whom couldn't read themselves, but knew, okay, we got to create schools. We got to create jobs. We got to pull our resources and our talents together in order to build up communities and build up spaces for our children to flourish, for us to build future generations, for us to be able to hand off something, a business, a fortune, a car, whatever it is, eventually a car, but <laughs> like be able to hand off, you know, something to the future generations that we build. And thinking about that mindset of that, I'm going to come together and looking at some of those towns on who came together to build those towns. What was it? It was 12 people here, four people here, 65 people here that came together and built whole towns and institutions, mm -hmm. right? They didn't have the internet. They didn't have email, right? Some of them couldn't even read some of the, you know, but they figured, okay, this is the talent that I have. I can build, I can weld, I can farm, I can what have you. And we can come together and build whole societies for our children and for our future. And then to help to take care of those who can't, 
participate, who can't do it themselves, right? Children and mothers and our seniors and what have you. And so that mindset, I'm always troubled by how we got from that mindset to this mindset of, you know, this is mine and, you know, I got it all for me and I can't share it with everybody else. Like I got it all for me. And just using that as example, when with black women is that example of, I don't have to start and try to have a march with, you know, thousands of black women, you know, down the street. I could just email 65 of my friends and yeah. we can come and together I, and make an impact. I, and I think that, you know, in the spirit of saying Kofa, you know, we can't really go where we need to go without understanding where we come from. And you make a really important point because the collective, there is power in our ability to be a collective. And the more we recognize how our individual powers, yes, you should hone in on your individual influence and power, but recognize how your individual influence and power connects into the collective and how you actually bring that to the collective. I think there's this idea now that you go and you build and you build and you immense power for yourself. No, you immense that and you build that to pour back into, as Donna Brazil calls it, the bank of justice. Like, what are you depositing back into the bank of justice? So you got this great corporate job. That's great. Okay, so you have some influence. Maybe you have an influence in that corporate job on how they give their charitable uh, dollars or what their foundation is supporting in terms of social justice organizations. And at that opportunity, you can lift up one or two organizations that you know are being led by people who really are doing the work and meaningful work in communities who otherwise might just get overlooked because maybe they're not as popular or mainstream named organization and you have opportunity to bring that up. So that's how you may be yielding power or maybe you are, and I use this example all the time, you know, you may think that you don't have an important role because you're behind the scenes, you know, at a television studio and you're like, I'm just a booker. Well, you know what? Actually, you make, uh, you know, you have a lot of influence on who you're calling and the voices that you're putting in front of millions of people to discuss some of the most uh, salient issues of the nation. So we all have some form of influence that we can bring to the collective. And, and I like to think about when with Black women is the idea that all of these Black women across the country, so you got these Black women in Silicon Valley and, and, and examples like there were sisters who were in tech um, doing critical times that were actually able to, in a you know very ethical way, you know, understand the realities that people were facing as it related to voting and getting information out. And then they could actually take that information inside of their companies and say, hey, we should think about, you know, doing X, Y and Z because it'll actually help people get more uh, information in a nonpartisan way to figure out how to vote. Um, or there are women that were in, you know, Hollywood who were actually saying, you know what, I work with all of these artists and, you know, I am actually going to use my power as, you know, my day job is actually, I'm a publicist and a talent agent, but I'm actually going to reach out to all of these talent and ask them to leverage their social media profiles uh, to actually 
give voice to, you know, these black women and black women led organizations in Georgia so that we can actually get more information out about the important, you know, runoff election in Georgia. So I just use those as examples of how folks were taking their own talents in the collective, bringing them together. And as a result, we were actually moving the needle forward as it relates to helping, you know, support the election of the first black woman vice president in the United States. Um, helping, you know, give wind and support to black women and black women led organizations who were really the leaders on the ground uh, that delivered a United States Senate um, to the Democratic Party. And additionally, you know, help to really lift up the narrative that spoke to the power and the importance of just the mere presence and the mere contribution of black women in, in, in this country. So, Joteka, what's next for you? What's on your horizon? I, I can ask what's on your democracy agenda for the end of the year, but I have a, you know, a sneaking suspicion that you have called your senators already. I have no representation in Washington. In the Senate, right. You yeah, have, no I have no representation because I live in Washington, D.C., but that is actually on my democracy agenda is always calling and advocating for full representation for residents of the District of Columbia. That is a very wonderful item to have on your agenda. And, you know, something can actually be done about it. You know, there's no reason why with the millions of people that live in the District of Columbia, they should not have full representation. And so what else is on your democracy agenda? So voting rights is absolutely on my democracy agenda. And I have to shout out and lift up National Council of Negro Women, and the Black Women's Roundtable, Sister Melanie Campbell and Sister Janice Mathis and Dr. Janetta Besh Cole for their leadership in leading Black women and allies in going to the U.S. Supreme Court and to, you know, the United States Senate. Week after week, I've been out there marching, uh, rallying, you know, making calls to as many senators as possible to send one very clear message. We absolutely must pass voting rights legislation now. We must pass the Freedom, uh, the Freedom to Vote Act, uh, and we must also pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Both are incredibly important. One will advance voting in this country and voting reforms that will help expand access to democracy. Um, the other will deal with Shelby County versus Holder, which was a Supreme Court case that gutted section four of the of the of the voting rights act and a critical component that helps protect our right to vote and prevent states from and local jurisdictions from doing all the things that we're seeing in places like georgia and florida and texas and with texas. changing the rules moving the goalposts because of what because of what largely they saw Many black women and people of color came out to vote and the result of that. And so as a as a as a response, we've seen yet another wave of an aggressive attack on voting rights. And so we need federal legislation and we need it now. And that is so incredibly important. It should be on every single person's democracy calendar for this for this week, next week, the next week and the next week, because our ability to vote is ultimately the way in which we can advocate for every issue we care about, whether it's economic equity in this country, whether it's education, clean air, clean energy, education, 
criminal justice reform, we can't elect those into office that can actually develop and vote on those policies if we don't have unfettered access to the ballot box. Absolutely. And lastly, I did see you on a, you know, little, I guess not little, a very large network recently. And a little birdie told me that there's more coming. Yes, I'm super excited. So I, I'm a proud co-host of the Oprah Winfrey Network own television series, Speak Sis. So it's near and dear to my heart because it's everything that I love. Because, you know, I used to get talks too much on my report card uh, in a little town of Johnsonville. And now, you know, I have a show. I can tell my teachers, like, actually, like, somebody wants me to talk. Uh, but it's uh, a show that is dedicated to critical and important conversations with Black women, uh, focus on issues that impact Black women. And so we're super excited. Uh, January 4th and 5th, there will be a two-day special in which uh, we will air several uh, new episodes, episodes focused on physical health, sexual health. That'll be really fun. I'm still nervous about my dad seeing that episode. Um, and also about Black women's financial health. And so we have a lot of great guests Tia Maori, uh, 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 Tiffany Bajanista uh, will be on there, uh, and April Ryan, a voice that many of us know, and uh, Kim Whitley, and so uh, many others that will be guests on the show. So I'm super excited. Uh, more to come. I hope that everyone can tune in to Speak Sis. Listen, I think we need to do like a photo shoot of those of us who had some of the similar items on our report cards <laughs> and what we do now, because I had, you know, talks too much, takes over the class discussion, <laughs> like all of that exactly. kind of stuff on I my still, report card. I still and I was have like... photos of it. And I'm actually <laughs> Facebook friends with most of my teachers and my kindergarten teachers. And they laugh. They're like, oh, we're just so excited. We just knew, I, you know, but I had talks too much. I always tell folks, if your child has talks too much on their report card, do not discourage them, but encourage them and help them manage that because that generally is just a sign that it is a very gregarious, outgoing child with just a lot to share. And it's just, you know, don't discourage that child. Just help that child manage that talking and that spirit and also help challenge, channel that spirit into something that they may love because you never know. They may end up with a show on the Oprah Winfrey Network. Or on a YouTube channel with millions of subscribers and money. Absolutely. So, Jose, <laughs> thank you so very much for joining us, for coming to the front of the class here on Sunday Civics. We're always rooting for you. Happy to be in coalition and sisterhood with you. And thank you so very much. And we'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics. I'm your host, Eljoy Williams, and your neighborhood political strategist. I'm so thankful you made it this Sunday, and we'll see you next Sunday. It's cool.